I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 82. And yay, I don't have the flu. But I am sick. I went to the doctor. It's like, why do we both have to be sick the busiest fucking time of the year? I don't know. Because that's the way the universe works. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, you have zero time? Let's add a cold to it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I went to the doctor because, you know, Carrie got hers early on because she went to the doctor. And y'all... I had to go see a nurse practitioner because my doctor was, you know, like booked up. I was like, cool, whatevs. One, he had gorgeous blue eyes. Hello, sir. I mean, he's married, okay? But how fucking hilarious. And he makes me get on the exam table and he is going to check my lymph nodes. So he brings his hands up and he's like, don't worry, I'm not going to choke you. <gasps> and I said, at least buy me dinner first. Oh, my <laughs> God. And, like, we both laughed, and he continued. And then he once he was like, all right, I'm going to have to squeeze on your head for a moment. <laughs> it was so weird. What? Like, just on the top of my yeah. head and stuff, like, it, for the sinus pressure. He's like, how does that feel? How does that feel? And I want to be like, lower, lower. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm not going to choke you. That is hilarious. <laughs> Oh, my God. Right? <laughs> and, of course, you come back with some fucking witty shit, like, by me dinner first, I'd have been like, hee-hee-hee. <laughs> you know who I bet has all the witty comebacks? I'm going to guess Ashley E. from North Dakota. And Jess R. from Pennsylvania. Robin N. from Texas. DDVH from Texas. We got a Texas trifecta with Kelly P., from texas <laughs> <laughs> and you know what what we kicking it over there on the west coast with chandra c from arizona oh fuck mm -hmm. all the hot states mm -hmm. daylight saving time what <laughs> <laughs> thank y'all so freaking much for being part of the patreon and joining just in time for all the halloween good good for these 31 Nights of Halloween. You even get the extra coaster when you get your stickers. Mm-hmm. So, again, thank y'all so freaking much for joining Patreon. If you want to get stickers, an episode shout-out, all of the bonus content, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. We did a live in the Creepinati last night as, you know, part of the 31 Nights of Halloween. It was 31 hours of planned chaos mm -hmm. in the best way possible. We wore, like, these monster finger things, and let me just tell you, one time I gagged by eating something. Imagine that. And then other times, me and Carrie had such a good time of her flinging particles in my mouth from the fingernail on the monster hand. We're very professional. Mm-hmm. You had to be there. All right. We're just going to jump on in to my story then. Picture it. It is early 19th century San Diego. It's booming as a city, and unfortunately, it started to take over a nearby Native American settlement, and that population was the Kumeyaay tribe. And due to disease and conflict, there were a lot of deaths. Well, that tribe used a certain piece of land for their burial grounds. Fast forward to 1852, and there was this man who had been convicted of attempted grand larceny and therefore he was sentenced to be hanged. His name was Jim Robinson, but everyone knew him as Yankee Jim. He's a Yankee Doodle sweetheart. 
Um, no. <laughs> he wasn't a sweetheart. He was pretty much known as a bandit during the gold rush. Oh. Yeah. Well, he had traveled to San Diego to hide out, but he couldn't stop his thievery ways, allegedly. Mm-hmm. And he was caught trying to steal a boat. Well, the thing about Yankee Jim, he was freaking tall, 6'4", and around this time, the average height for men was 5'5". Five, five. Whoa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 5'5"? Mm-hmm. Are we using the same rulers? <laughs> so, he was 6'4". Well, that meant that the gallows that he was going to be hanged in um, wasn't much taller than him. Oh, my gosh. Well, unfortunately, this caused him to hang and strangle to death. <gasps> no! For over 15 minutes. No! Some reports say 45 minutes. Oh, my God. A newspaper back in the day, it was quoted as saying, kept his feet in the wagon as long as possible, but was finally pulled off. He swung back and forth like a pendulum until he was strangled to death. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, what do these two things have in common? Well, it's the place where the deaths happened. The Indian burial grounds plus the public gallows. And it was like approximately five to ten executions were held at that site. Mm. What is the next thing that normally comes with these kind of stories? Ghosts. Someone decides to build a house on this land. And then ghosts yep <laughs> and that man was thomas whaley thomas was a successful new york businessman but now he went to san diego because he followed the gold rush as well mm-hmm. so here's the thing as you usually say he had attended the hanging of yankee jim so he knew what went down on this property. Uh-huh. But so he was like, all right, this is actually prime real estate and mm, budget. I can get this on the cheap, cheap. So he was like, done and done. A businessman. Mm-hmm. And the thing about that, he wasn't superstitious. Being a logical thinker, he, you know, could not comprehend anything superstitious or Ooh, people have died here. Okay, so what? Big deal. I get it on the cheap. Mm -hmm. That's good enough for me. So that was that. He bought it and built what we now know as the Whaley House. And the home would become like a social scene, obviously, you know, as one does in these stories. It's always like, it's always so popular and stuff, but I just thought about it. It's like there's so much life in the houses that... Then there's so much death as well, Mm -hmm. you know? There has to be the balance. Yeah. The Whaley House is known as the most haunted house in California, and only one of two properties recognized by the government as being officially haunted. What? Yeah. It's located at 476 San Diego Avenue in San Diego, California. And it's the part it's located in is known as Old Town San Diego. All right. Thomas Whaley, he bought the property in 1855. Then it was built and finished on August 22nd, 1857. The family moved in to the second floor. That's their quarters and everything because the lower level was a general store that he opened and that's what they ran. Well, the ghost you talked about, 
Uh, It happened pretty much soon after they moved in. Thomas and his wife, Anna, they would hear heavy footsteps throughout the house, up the stairs, and they said it sounded like the boots of a large man. A six-foot-four man? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, as Carrie said, they came to the conclusion that it was made by Yankee Jim. Night after night, they would hear these footsteps, and they would just get louder and louder and louder. And finally, Thomas just had to kind of acknowledge, like, all right, this isn't a coincidence. Mm -hmm. Like, this is something, actually someone. Mm. And it's not like the house is just settling. It's a brand new house. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a 45-year-old house, you know? Right. Other than those, you know, heavy boots all through the night, all of that shit, Mm -hmm. which, again, don't fuck with Carrie's sleep. That would be huge shit for her. Yeah. Do not fuck with my sleep. (laughs) Well, something worse happened just a short while after they moved in. Their son, little Thomas, basically, I don't know Thomas, like the third, he got scarlet fever. Oh, no. He was only 18 months old (gasps) and he died from it. No. Oh, God. I know. So he died January 28th, 1858. Well, at the time, Anna was pregnant. So, that baby was born June 27th, 1858. They named the baby Anna Amelia, and all is right with the world again, you know? hmm However, someone set fire to their general store downstairs and destroyed the that, biz, that whole business. They had a different business somewhere else, and two months later, they set fire to that as well. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Well, as you can imagine, they are devastated. It's like, oh, my God, you're scared to ask what next. Mm -hmm. They were like, all right, we're taking the loss. Let's just go to San Francisco and, you know, let's just rent out this home and be done with it. Well, in 1868, there was a major earthquake in San Francisco, and so they had to go back to San Diego. They opened another general store, but... They were kind of low on funds right now, so they rented out the front upstairs bedroom to a theater company. It was small, but, you know, something. Then the San Diego County Courthouse, they used three rooms upstairs for record storage. You know, so they they just had different things. And then it also ended up being a courtroom at some point. Oh, damn. Mm Mm-hmm. That was until 1871. Then the courthouse moved to the new town. Well... That means that they want their records over there at the Newtown. But their lease wasn't up yet. Oh. And so Thomas was like, no, if y'all do this, I need money. Mm-hmm. Because, again, he is a businessman. Yeah. Two, he is low on funds. And three, they signed a contract. Yep. So what you going to do to get out of it? So the Newtown people, they were like, look. We are going to fucking take these records however we need to take them. And he said, bitch better have my money. That's right. Yes. Pay me what you owe me. (laughs) Then there's, you know, the version for Halloween. Which better have my candy. (laughs) Well, in March 1871, Thomas Whaley was in New York on a business trip, they said. But some people said he was running away. I don't know. But the citizens of Newtown raided the house. What? And removed the court documents. 
Was anybody there? Yeah, Thomas's wife and their young daughter were held at gunpoint, Mm-mm. supposedly. And they speculate it was on the ninth stair, which I don't even know how you, like, know that. I don't know. Well, today, people who visit, they report that they have a chill when they're going up those stairs. So things kept bebopping along. They had more kids, and they had a daughter named Violet and then Anna Amelia. They both got married on January 5th, 1882, at the house, double wedding, you know, all of the things rich people do. Kind of smart rich people, though, because, I mean, mm-hmm. two birds, one stone. Mm-hmm. One check. Well, also, um, I think that the house that he had was, like, one of the nicer things. So, like, mm-hmm. where else are they going to do it? You know, mm-hmm. like, everything else is beneath them, allegedly. Don't haunt me. But he still got a twofer. Mm-hmm. The honeymoon did not last long for Violet and her husband because she woke up one day when they were traveling back from their honeymoon, actually, and her husband was gone. <gasps> Vanished. Like a fart in the wind. Yep. Like, just gone? Mm-hmm. They learned later that he had only married her for her dowry, and he thought that he was going to collect that when they got married. Well, joke's on him, because uh, he apparently didn't get it, right? I don't think he did. However, this is going to piss you off. Because at the time, societal standards and all of that shit, Violet was shunned because she... What? uh Uh-huh. Because when she came home, she was without a husband. You know, like, my husband's gone. Mm -hmm. Then she had traveled the rest of the way by herself because, you know, husband left. Mm -hmm. Well, you're not supposed to travel unchaperoned. And so... Double fucking whammy. uh Uh-huh. Well, their divorce finally came, like, it finalized, like, a year later. But that was too much for Violet. And so she was depressed and humiliated and felt betrayed by this man and her friends and all of the things, you know. Well, she died by suicide. (gasps) No. Yes, August 18th, 1885. She was 22 years old. No. Mm -hmm. And she shot herself in the chest. Oh, shit. With her dad's thirty-two caliber. She did leave a note. It was just a poem by Thomas Hood, and this is what it said. Mad from life's history, swift to death's mystery, glad to be hurled anywhere, anywhere out of this world. Their other sister, Corinne, she was engaged when Violet died, but her fiancé broke off the engagement because of, again, societal pressure and, like, the scandal Mm -hmm. that it all caused. God, that... Just angers me. Mm -hmm. All of the things. All of it. If you can't support me in my fucking darkest hour when my sister just died by suicide, get the fuck off then. Exactly. Boy, fucking bye. I'm better off. Mm Mm-hmm. After Violet's death, Thomas built a single-story home in downtown San Diego, and that's where they moved to. In 1888, Thomas became ill, retired from his business, And he died at that new residence, December 14th, 1890, and he was 67 years old. The Whaley House, you know, it was vacant, was in, you know, disarray, disrepair, all of the things, until 1899 when Francis Whaley 
returned and was like, I'm going to restore this. After the restoration was complete, Francis lived in the residence and then made it a tourist attraction. Some other family members moved in. And by 1912, a lot of the siblings lived together. Francis, George, Anna, and her daughter, Lillian, all lived in that house. I love the name Lillian. Such a classic. Mm-hmm. Anna died in the house February 24th, 1913. Francis died in the house November 19th, 1914. And then Lillian stayed until 1953, and she moved out to go to a nursing home. And that Lillian is also named Corinne. Like, they all had double names. So she was the one whose fiancé called it off. So that, to me, just means that, like, she never Mm -hmm. got married, never had kids, like... You know what I mean? She, Which was seemed to be what she wanted. So when she moved out, it was, again, it was vacant, decrepit, you know, all of the things. Everything we say right before we talk about ghost. September 14th, 1953, Lillian died. And then two and a half years later, the county of San Diego took over ownership and started renovating And on May 25th, 1960, the Whaley House was officially named a historical site and now is open to the public as a museum. So none of them had kids? Like for the house to go to? I guess not. I don't know. It's interesting. For the time, I mean, you know. Yeah. I guess with all the scandal and shit around their family, they were tainted. I don't know. All right. So on to the ghost. Picture it. You're looking up at the Whaley house, and it's on the second floor, and, oh, it might be at dark, like after dark, where you know no one is supposed to be in there, and people will see a figure staring out of the window. They've seen curtains moving, even though the house has been, you know, sealed shut, all the windows have closed, all of that. There's sounds of children running up and down the stairs, those nine stairs that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. They can hear footsteps, obviously cold spots, shadows, the whole shebang. The most active ghost is believed to be Thomas Whaley. A lot of people have smelled Cuban cigar smoke, which was his favorite. Sometimes they would have to leave the room because it would be so overpowering. Dang. But sometimes he's a rude ass because it won't be like lingering in a room it will be like he blew the smoke in your face oh shit Uh uh-huh but no smoke it's like the opposite of a vape damn he is usually seen wearing a long coat top hat you know pants (laughs) (laughs) i'm guessing maybe shoes maybe he doesn't have feet he's just floating could be he has been seen throughout the house but Usually at the top of the stairs. And all I can think about is Titanic when she's going to meet him for dinner. And Jack's up there by the clock and everything. Mm -hmm. Looking good. Anyway. Also, they can hear his loud laughter throughout the house. Because apparently he had like a booming laugh. Which. uh, He would fit right in with us. mm Mm-hmm. Bless anyone who I haunt. Because they're going to be like, this loud ass Mother Humper won't let me sleep. This some boo sheet. <laughs> oh, my God. 
<laughs> I can't laugh, but that was a good one. <laughs> Thank you. Anna Whaley, Thomas's wife, she has been seen. So when she was alive, she sang, played the piano, you know, real talented. Well, people have definitely heard the piano playing. But again, it could be uh, the hooked up things like you always say. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have spotted her in the downstairs rooms where the piano is. And in the garden, there's often a smell of perfume with her. You know, not the smoke with her husband. Mm-hmm. One time there was a visitor and they saw a lady in the garden picking flowers. So they're like, did you get permission? Like, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. And so they're being, you know, like Dudley Do-Right and went over there to approach her and to be like, don't touch the flowers. Mm-hmm. Stay off the grass. <laughs> well, when the witness got it around 10 feet, the woman just vanished in front of her. And when the witness was like describing what the lady looked like, she said that she had on a long cream dress and her hair was done like in an old fashioned style. You can often hear giggles and like just sweet child laughter. However, at night, it turns into cries, like an infant crying. Mm -mm. And they think that's baby Thomas. The one that died? Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Also, I don't care how cute that fucking laughter is. If it's a kid and there's no kid around, it ain't fucking cute. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. They said that the Whaley's had a red-haired daughter, but did not give her name. And I'm sorry, I don't know. But they said that she died under mysterious circumstances at 11 years old. Oh, God. They do know that she ate a large amount of poisonous powder, <gasps> but they don't know why. However, she is like one of the most playful ghosts in the house. And she only really appears to children. But when she appears to them, she appears in such a clear image. Like, she, you know what I mean? Like, they think that she's just a normal kid. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Her specialties are pulling hair and tickling other kids, and it's usually around little girls around her age. And due to her playfulness, people say that she is the ghost who will swing a meat cleaver in the kitchen, and, like, hundreds of visitors have seen this happen. I don't call swinging a meat cleaver fucking playful. Well, she a kid, so she she don't know better. We're like, that's fucking mm -hmm. some Saul style. Damn. Want to play a game? No, I don't. Put the <laughs> fucking cleaver down and go play jump rope. Right? Like, where's your jacks at? I'll play that. Hop, skip, jump. What? No, because she's she's mischievous. She'd probably leave those jacks out so you'd step on them. Ooh. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. What the Home Alone's going on here? Mm-mm. 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 Well, Violet has been seen, and a lot of people say that she is on the second floor, and she'll just aimlessly walk or stand there, but they have an overwhelming sense of sadness. Like I mentioned, there was a courthouse there at one point, and some people have sensed a presence of a woman in the courtroom. They say that she's wearing a full long skirt, and it reaches the floor, and it appears to be like gingham. She has a cap on her head, dark eyes, dark hair, and she's wearing gold hoops in her pierced ears. Doesn't fit any of the Whaley's descriptions, but she stays in the courtroom and people say that they have an intense feeling of being watched in there. 
and, you know, all of the things. Mrs. Reading, who is the curator, she arrived at the Whaley House early. She was getting ready to open up, you know, just doing her, like, morning inspections. Rounded the corner into the dining room, and she was like, bam, greeted with an image of a Native American. And she said he looked super real, except he had no feet. And he just kind of hovered there and then faded slowly from her view. The ultimate hoverboard that never goes dead. Damn. Well. Well, because it's already dead. Yeah. Womp, womp. Damn. Womp. Yankee Jim, his footsteps can still be heard. Again, mostly on the stairs. And remember that ninth step? Mm-hmm. People believe that's where he was hanged during his whole ordeal. You know, where he died a slow, painful death of mm-hmm. because he was convicted of attempted robbery. Mm. Some people who visit there, they say they have a feeling of a noose tightening around their neck as they tour the house. And they have seen Yankee Jim standing behind the tour guides when they're giving their presentations. All right. In 1964, Regis Philbin. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Him and a companion, they decided to spend the night in the Whaley House. Around 2.30 a.m., they saw something or someone walk from the study into the music room. Well, Regis later said that he, like, what they saw was, like, a filmy white, you know, like, substance. Mm -hmm. And it looked kind of like an apparition. So, he got so excited that he, like, just without thinking, he switched on the flashlight And he said nothing was there but the portrait of Anna Whaley. Mm -mm. And so, like, where it had ended, they believe it was Anna Whaley, her spirit. Mm -mm. Another celebrity sighting, Tom Green, he said that one time he was playing Bedazzled Boot slash Dybbuk Douche. Don't know which one he is today. We still have a Halloween special to watch before I, you know, he might be another name after that. But he was trying to play him. I mean, he didn't say this, but he called out to the spirit in the house. So that's what I say. He was trying to be Zach. And he said that he was answered, but he was answered by an eerie sound of a child's voice. Mm -mm. Again, lots of people hear piano music and everything, windows shutting, all the things. The archway between the music room and the parlor is supposed to be the location of the gallows. And some people reported... You know, to feel, again, that noose around their neck when standing there. And so, I don't know where that comes up from, like, the ninth step and this archway. I don't know which one is correct. Huh. Because they might, on the ninth step, since that was where, supposedly, his wife and young daughter was held at gunpoint, they might have just been, like, holding their breaths. And if it replays... You know, that residual Mm -hmm. energy, that's why they feel that constraint up there is because they're holding their breath thinking they're about to die. I don't know. All the people in the Whaley house that that work there, they all have their own stories. You know, like sometimes the chandelier will be swinging, but no air's on. You know, like no one's upstairs. The lavender perfume, that tobacco... They said that the apparitions that they see are usually solid and they look real, but mm-hmm. they're dressed in 19th century clothes. And it's like, oh, okay, it could be, you know, someone who's dressed up for the tour. But no, like they follow them and they just disappear around a corner. 
There's even a dog that's a ghost dog, Dolly, and it's a small fox terrier. A lot of the visitors to the house have seen this small terrier, like both in and out of the house, morning, night. And there's also a cat named Winks. That's cute. Sometimes the dog will chase it. I mean. I mean, I watch Tom and Jerry. Uh Uh-huh. On weirdus.com, they interviewed a volunteer, like a tour guide named Deborah. Uh Uh-huh. And she's been at the Whaley House for about two years at the time of this interview. She said one time there was this police chief, and he did not believe in spirits or ghosts and was very vocal about it. Really, you know, that skeptical asshole, though, like Mm -hmm. just the one who is ruining it for everyone. And it's like, cool, I get it. Sometimes it's silly, but like, just chill, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, he's standing in the hallway talking to another tour guide, and suddenly there was like a puff of the cigarette smoke. He made a mad dash for the door and was like, oh, my God. And about that time, he was hit with another smell of the tobacco. She said he never returned and that other people did smell it, like the tour guide that he was standing by. But there was no smoke, just the odor. Uh -uh. But so she's like, look, the house does not like skeptical assholes. Right. Who does? She said the most disturbing thing that she's seen is she was downstairs and she heard this like really loud shout sounded like someone was falling down the stairs. So when she ran up there to ask like, Oh my God, did y'all hear it? They thought it was down. Like they thought it was her like down on the first floor. And one of the other staff members, they were in a room off of the hallway and they said it sounded like someone saying, get out. Uh Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. And these people look so real that police officers have been called, you know, to be like, oh, my God, someone's in here or whatever. One police officer said that he saw a woman in the back of the house crying, and he only revealed that when he retired from the police force. He said the woman was in period clothing, and when he was like, "Uh, ma'am, are you okay? She turned around and smiled, and then when he turned, you know, like he put his flashlight on her she vanished Mm -mm. so i'll leave you with a quote from regis philbin Uh oh who wants to be a millionaire no i'm just kidding does anyone else miss him doing that i loved him as the host for that Mm -mm. anyway his quote is you know a lot of people poo poo it because they can't see it but there is something going on in that house it's so true though that Mm mm-hmm it's so easy to be like, ah, blah, blah, when you can't see it or feel it or, you know, you don't experience it for yourself. Yeah. Y'all, we have our first sponsor ever. And what could be more perfect than a fellow creepster being the first one? This episode is sponsored by Debbie Draws Funny. It's quirky and sweet green cards for all the weirdos in your life, um, like us. Y'all, seriously, her cards are on point. And they're all hand-drawn. And you know what? She's kind of a big deal. Her cards have been in the Huffington Post, Glamour, BuzzFeed, and the freaking New York Times. The New York Times. Well, and now our show. I mean, just saying. Just saying. Y'all know we love a good deal, and she has one for y'all. $5 off when you spend $20 at DebbieDrawsFunny.com. D-E-B-B-I-E, DrawsFunny.com. Again, $5 off 
when you spend 20 and all you need to do is put in the promo code creep it real. So go to debbiedrawsfunny.com. That's Debbie D E B B I E and use promo code creep it real. All right. Do you remember back it was episode 76 and I did the story of Robert Picton the yeah. yeah, he was the pig farmer. Yes. And a horrible human being. Yes, from Canada, the serial killer. And we talked about how he had all these victims that were part of, like, marginalized populations and that sort of thing. And one of the biggest populations that I missed on highlighting was the fact that he he also targeted indigenous women. Yeah. And a couple of the listeners point, you know, brought it up. They were like, hey, they're Canadian. And they were like, look, this is a big deal up here. Sheena and Tawny were two of them that brought it up in the Facebook group. Thank y'all, by the way. And they both actually mentioned this stretch of highway in Canada. And it has the name known as the Highway of Tears. And so I wanted to do this today because, one, today is Indigenous Peoples Day. Like, today is in the day this episode comes out. Yeah. It's Indigenous Peoples Day. So I thought today would be the perfect opportunity to talk about the plight of the people who are indigenous to Canada, men and women, honestly, because we're going to kind of talk about both, but it's mostly going to be about women who, who are indigenous to Canada. The Highway of Tears in Canada is actually, to me, a little reminiscent of the Trail of Tears in yeah. the United States. So just like a quick little thing, the Trail of Tears in the United States was really just a year span when Native Americans who were Cherokee were forced to literally schlep their way across the United States because they were forced out of their homes. Yeah. And so so much so many of them got sick and died and it became known as the Trail of Tears. But that was in like 1839. Okay. Here's the deal with the Highway of Tears. It's actually talking about a 724-kilometer highway. It's like, for us who don't understand what that means, that's like 400 miles. I mean, it's more, a little more. Yeah. And it's actually Highway 16. Like, it's a legitimate highway. Mm. And it goes from Prince Rupert to Prince George. Oh, where's Prince Albert, though? In somebody's pants. Damn. So, Prince Rupert and Prince George are both part of British Columbia in Canada. But this is a really big stretch of highway, right? And it's said that one of the... I listen to a lot of podcasts, watched a lot of YouTube videos. There's a 48 Hours about it that I watch. There's, there's a lot, but also not a lot about it. Yeah. Especially for what it is. Like, anyway. Okay, we're going to get into it. One of the podcasts I listened to, though, I can't remember exactly which one it was, said that basically for every mile of actual paved Highway 16, the, like, offshoot roads to it is, like, five miles of unpaved roads because it's such a rural area that there's all these other roads and, way you know, ways to get around and all this stuff that's not as developed. Wow. And along those kind of offshoots of Highway 16, there are 23 different First Nations that border that highway. And so those are 
basically tribes of people who are indigenous to Canada. They call them First Nations. I feel like that any indigenous population, whether it be America, Canada, Australia, whatever, there's there tends to be a distrust with like between them and the government, them and people in power and that sort of thing because of such a long history of being disenfranchised. And so the Highway of Tears is no different. It is not the exception to the rule, unfortunately. And as we go into the story, you'll completely see why. So I want to do a little bit of background information about the populations, the kind of along the Highway of Tears, but also just the rural populations of First Nations and what they've kind of gone through that has gotten us to this place. So one of the things that really then now is still a problem for people who are indigenous is systemic racism. And one of the ways that that systemic racism was used from about kind of like the early to mid 1800s was the requirement of obviously kids to go to school, which in itself, not a bad thing, right? Yeah. Kids need to go to school. They need to learn. But what was happening was in the 1830s, what they were doing was the government and the churches were coming together to create residential schools so that kids could go live. Kids that lived in these rural areas could go to school, but they would be able to go and live there versus like kind of like a boarding school versus like trying to like transport them and having these all these different smaller schools. The kids would just leave their house. Well, that's all fine and dandy. But what happened is basically after 1880, there was some legislation that was passed. And basically what it meant was children from First Nations would have to go to schools in order to become basically more white, to become more Euro-Canadians. And so what they would do is, again, because like those 23 First Nations that are along Highway 16, the Highway of Tears, those kids were in such rural, rural areas, their only option was to go to these residential schools. So the residential schools were run, were basically government-sponsored schools. They're run by churches. And the idea was that they were supposed to like integrate the kids into Canadian society versus only knowing their their culture within their First Nation. I found a really good article by this guy named J.R. Miller. It was on, um, I think it was on the Canadian Encyclopedia that really broke down the residential schools and, and what it meant and the things that the kids were put through. But basically, there were 150,000 kids that went to these residential schools. And there were about 130 of them operational between 1831 and 1996 in Canada. There was a residential school in all but two provinces. While the students were at the residential schools, they were essentially isolated from their families their culture, everything that they know, everything that they should learn from, again, their family and their culture. They were even sometimes like separated from their siblings. And then to top it off, they were not allowed to speak their first language 
they had to either speak English or French. And so even when they would write letters home to their parents, they had to do it in English or French. Wow. So think about how many of these kids' parents couldn't even read the letters that they were sending. Yeah. Whoa. It was set up almost like a prison. Because as soon as the, the kid got to one of the residential schools, their hair was cut and their clothes were taken and given, they were given, quote, school clothes. I'm making that up, but but clothes that the school wanted them to wear. And their more traditional clothing was taken. What the fuck? Just stripping them of their whole identity. Exactly. And then... Creating an image of society or whatever. Creating the image that they want. Yeah, but, and that's the thing too. So you take their, you you know, you cut their hair, you cut, you change their clothes, you separate them from their siblings, you tell them that they can't speak the language that they know the best, and then you basically cut them off from their parents. Yeah. Because the whole point of them going to these residential schools was because their parents couldn't afford to take them to whatever local school that they could because they may not have had a car or, you know, just so many contributing factors. Well, those contributing factors are the same reasons why a lot of the parents couldn't go visit the kids at schools, even when they did have visitation. So the kids are essentially cut off from their their families. That is so freaking sad. And some of the things that I read were talked about that a lot of these kids were forcibly taken from their parents to go to these schools. Oh, my gosh. You know that part in the help when the little kid is saying goodbye? Mm-hmm. Like, don't go. Don't yeah. go. I lose it every time. Uh-huh. And, like, when you said that, like, that's what I pictured? Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. No. There's a, a guy named Daniel Kennedy, and in 1972, he wrote basically, like, a memoir of his experiences in the schools. And it said that when he was 12... Quote, I was lassoed, roped, and taken to the government school. He talked about that when he first got there, his name was changed to be an English name. The school interpreter had to tell him, quote, you were brought here for purposes of enrollment. You were asked to give your name, and when you did, the principal remarked that there were no letters in the alphabet to spell this little heathen's name, and no civilized tongue could pronounce it. Oh my gosh. Uh Uh-huh. He also talked about when he got to the school, they cut off his braids. And all he knows of that, like as, a, as at that point as a child, was that the customs that he had learned throughout his life was when you get like in, that's a sign of mourning. When you're in mourning, you cut, you get your hair cut. The closer the cut is to the scalp, the closer the relative is who died. And he said that basically after his hair was cut, it was so short that he sat there and wondered if it, his mother had died. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. How freaking sad. Like, that's all I can say is, oh, my gosh. I know. So that just kind of gives you an idea of the how traumatizing just even just getting to these schools was for, for these kids. Because, one, again, some of them were taken by force from their parents. And then when they got there, they were immediately changed of everything that they possibly knew and had to have a freaking translator because they were trying to change everything about these kids. 
in the 50s is when the programs kind of changed. Like before they would be half day school, half day work for the kids. And the schools, when they were doing like half days work and half day school, they of course justified it to be like, we're teaching these kids skills for being a productive adult. But really, they were just trying to make the school run as cheaply as possible with freaking child labor. And so they broke down the tasks based on gender, which is a whole nother thing that we're not even going to touch because let's stay on task with one freaking marginalized population at a time. The boys were more what you think of like carpentry, construction, that kind of thing. And the girls had to do the cooking, cleaning and all of that at the residential schools. Okay, so this is this is a sample of a daily schedule of a kid from 1893. They woke up at 5:30. They had chapel at 6. Then at 6:30 they would make their bed, wash up, milk the cows and stuff. Then at 7 they would go to their classrooms. Then they would have breakfast. Then they would have chores or go to work. Then school, lunch, Followed by, again, more chores, filling up tanks, sweeping, carrying coal, you know, just what the Cinderella's going on here. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing was that the teachers weren't like actual teachers. Oh, gosh. And, you know, all the lessons would be in English or French. And a lot of those kids did not speak those languages. And so they were... Be in these classrooms, not even knowing what the freaking teacher was talking about. Wow. And teacher in quotes. Mm-hmm. There's this one article that outlined basically like the six key components that were terribly wrong with these schools. So it said that the government did not set clear goals and standards for the education. And basically the curriculum, no matter the age, was of an elementary school curriculum and the point of it was basically to imply that people who are indigenous are inferior intellectually there were no policies on teacher qualification the teachers were underqualified the curriculum focused on what they called the four r's reading writing arithmetic and religion and a lot of the students that came through actually when, you know, when they left, they didn't even have the education that they needed to be productive members of society as they were. Impl- it was, it's very much like the prison system, you know, like let's, let's put, let's set these kids up to fail basically. But of course we would not be talking in this much detail about these residential schools. If that was all that was wrong with them, there was significant physical and sexual abuse occurring at these schools Mm-mm. because Again, these kids are completely isolated from their families and from everything they know. There's no one that they can trust and reach out to. And so they are at the most vulnerable place that a kid could be. Mm. I already hate this story. It's bad. It's bad. They would beat the kids, I mean, like, mercilessly. Fuck. They would chain them up. Chain them up? Mm -hmm. They would, like, lock them in rooms. I I don't even know. And I'm not even going to go into all the predatory sexual abuse that these kids endured. But as if all that isn't enough, at least 3,200 
kids who were indigenous that were in those residential schools died because of overcrowding. This is seriously like that jail that I did yes. in uh, Charleston. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. The record keeping was mm, pretty fucking shitty. Mm, and that. Exactly. And when you've got the government and churches involved covering their ass, mm-hmm. trying to save a dime, but trying to make money and give money and get money and all the things, and they're trying to hide shit, they think that the number could be upwards of 6,000. No. Mm-hmm. The kids weren't taken care of. You know, yeah, they got fed, but they were incredibly malnourished. From underfeeding, some stuff I read talked about how kids ate rotten food and all that because they were just so underfed and malnourished. They ate anything they could find and get their hands on. So when you have kids that are working so hard in these jobs that they're making them do and you're not feeding them, they get sick very easily. With So there was a ton of tuberculosis, the flu, all kinds of illnesses that came through these schools because these kids couldn't, they couldn't fight it off. They didn't have an immune system because they were so malnourished. Well, what's another thing that really fucking crazy do when they have a vulnerable population at their fingertips? Experiments. What the fuck? Yep. They would do nutritional experiments on them. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And so what they would do is they would restrict some kids nutrition their dental care and make them basically the control group and then give the other kids better nutrition and all of this stuff. And then they would do tests to see what the long-term repercussions were. Uh, Pretty plain to see what they would be. Mm -hmm. They had outbreaks. I told you tuberculosis, the flu, they had outbreaks of smallpox, measles, typhoid, diphtheria, pneumonia, whooping cough. Fuck. And you know, The other thing, too, is that the schools themselves were really shitty, too. So it wasn't just like like the buildings themselves. So it wasn't just their nutrition and their treatment and their hardworking and all of that. The buildings were poorly ventilated. They were packed into these tight living quarters. The school would even get more money, obviously, for more the more kids they had. So they would even bring in kids who were sick. To get the money for those kids, like being at that school, quote unquote. And so it was just this revolving door of illness and injury and abuse. And all the while, for lack of a better word, deprogramming them Mm -hmm. of their traditions and their life before the residential school. Yeah, their culture. Mm -hmm. Their fucking identity. Mm Mm-hmm. And hell, it's like the school didn't care if these epidemics happened. Okay, overcrowding anyway. Yep. Oh, my God. Things kind of started to change in the late 60s, early 70s. By like 1986, most of the schools were closed. There was one that hung on, the Gordon Residential School hung on for about 10 more years. But I think that the practices had really changed. And so... Now there's like this huge $1.9 billion compensation package for the survivors of these schools Wow! because the Canadian government is trying to make it right. I mean, I know you can't make it right, mm-hmm. but they're, they're trying to support these survivors because, you know, the thing is 
when these kids went home, when they finally went back to their families. If they made it, mm-hmm. if they survived. Mm-hmm. One one of the quotes basically said it's like standing in a, in the middle of a room with two walls and you can't reach either. One wall is their history and their family and their culture and what they're going back to. But the other is kind of the Euro-Canadian culture that they were expected to try to assimilate to. And they're in the middle and they're neither now. They can't reach either because of what they've been through. Yeah. I know that's a, that was a lot, but I feel like that needed to really shed a light on why the people of these first nations do not trust the government. And that's what I mean by that systemic racism and how it continues because so now we've got the highway of tears and it's this stretch of 700 plus kilometers where women are going missing and turning up murdered and nobody's doing anything about it. And the problem is the majority of the women that are coming up missing or murdered are indigenous. And Again, if you think about the stretch of that highway and how we talked about that it's rural there, you know, one thing I, I can't remember if I read it or I heard it on a, a YouTube or a podcast I was listening to and it said, you're more likely to see a bear than a car. It's that rural. But on the other hand, it's the only way for people to get to these two towns. And these are people who are impoverished and cannot afford a car, cannot afford the transportation that they need to get to point a, from point A to point B. And so what do they do? They hitchhike. And so you have a, a huge number of people who are hitchhiking along this highway because it's their only option. And they're going missing and or being murdered. What the shit? I know. This is the other thing. Because, you know, there's always more. But wait, there's more. Some of the women, whether indigenous or not, have history of substance abuse or sex workers. And like I said, we're hitchhiking. And so these are, yes, these these put people in situations in which they are more vulnerable for murder and kidnapping and all the things. Does that mean that they should be investigated any less? Absolutely not. Right. And that's the point. The point Mm -hmm. of all this with the Highway of Tears is that these women are going missing, and women who are indigenous, women who are white, regardless of who they are, regardless of whether they have substance abuse problems, regardless of whether they're a sex worker, regardless, it doesn't fucking matter how much money they had. They had a car. They were hitchhiking. I don't give a fuck. They went missing, and they were murdered. Let's yeah. figure this fucking out. So how many women have gone missing along the Trail of Tears, if it's this huge big deal, right? Well, the RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, only acknowledge 18 victims along the Highway of Tears. Okay. And they're saying that those 18 victims occurred from 1969 to 2006. So you're like, "Mm, Mm. that's a really fucking long time. Uh Uh-huh. 18 people. Right. Uh, They're doing Donna math. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. Of the 18, though, that they actually recognized as victims along the Highway of Tears, 10 of them are indigenous women and kids. 
Wow. So, I mean, if you look at the percentage, that's a pretty fucking high percentage. Uh, yeah, definitely a majority. A lot of indigenous group leaders, though, say that the number definitely just in British Columbia along that is greater than 40. Wow. Whoa. The other thing is that British Columbia has the highest rate of unsolved murders of indigenous women and girls in Canada. Wow. This is a soundbite. Like, that's all I can say this whole mm-hmm. time is, oh, my God. Wow. Whoa. Yeah, I know. What the fuck? Because when you hear it all like this in story form, you're like, this is a fucking movie. Like, this is the this is ridiculous. How is this real life? But it's this systemic, like, cancerousness. You know, I know that's yeah. not even a thing, but it's like, that's the only way I can describe it is how it feels to me. It just feels icky and... I don't know. The RCMP had found some commonalities, similarities in some of the women that had gone missing. More specifically, they had noticed commonalities in three of the cases. Alicia Germain, Roxanne Tiara, I hope I said that right, and Ramona Wilson. So they created a new homicide unit, basically, called EPANA. This was in 2005. I think that in concept, EPANA was Really a nod to the, like, okay, we fucked up with this, with protecting women from the First Nations, you know, because the the name itself, Panna, comes from an Inuit spirit god that looks at souls before they go to heaven or, or are reincarnated. So, I think in theory, it really was coming from a good place, I hope. Just, I mean, why else? You know what I mean? But mm, not so much. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. There was three criteria that the RCMP used to decide if a case should be given to EPANA to look at it to see if it really is a Highway of Tears case. And this is where I think that they fucked up. One of the first ways, let's be honest. The first thing is that the victim had to have been involved in what they are saying is high-risk behavior. So are they hitchhiking? Are they a sex worker? That type of thing. The next criterion is they had to either be last seen or their body found within one mile of Highway 16. And then the last thing is they had to be female. So this is where I was like, when I saw that list, I was like, what? Because I feel like not every single person that... Like, that's a big old fucking assumption about who is going missing and murdered on the Highway of Tears. I feel like the people who are going missing are being re-victimized by their, quote, high-risk behavior. And it pisses me off because this is a more rural area. There isn't, at the time, public transportation. It's a lower socioeconomic kind of status area where they can't afford a car. If it comes between me hitchhiking to find a a job and feeding my family, I'm fucking hitchhiking. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So I think the point of that for me is that it places blame on the victims. And that to me is the same as saying that someone who is a victim of sexual assault shouldn't have worn a short skirt. Right. They were asking for it. Yeah. And that's not okay. No. The other thing is that... And I'm going to be honest, I did not see any of this in my research, but I thought about, I wonder if there are 
a lot of men or boys going missing because we're highlighting the women who are indigenous. But I'm wondering, are there any men? And it could be men who are sex workers or men who are hitchhiking for a job, you know? And so it's like, yeah. I, I wonder if there's a problem for men as well. And is that being, are they this minority within a minority that's being missed? Right. I have no idea. It was my just gut, like, but what, you know, like almost like when we look at victims of sexual assault, domestic violence, and it's women, 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 but are we forgetting the men that are victims as well? Yeah. And so I don't know. I'm, this is just pure speculation on my part, but I wonder if we're missing a piece of the puzzle yeah. by only including women. The other thing is that the one, the, that it has to be within a mile. They have to be last seen or the body found within a mile of the highway. Well, if you remember before, I said that basically for every mile of paved highway, there are five miles of offshoots of dirt roads and stuff that lead to these communities. And so it's like there's a vast forest and things where bodies could be dumped and yeah and may literally never be found yeah and so while i understand that for the purposes of epana and for the like what it was designed to do because originally it had this huge budget of like 40 million dollars i think and 70 investigators that were looking at these murders so I, I do understand that they had to narrow it down because then they go from 18 to 7 billion. You know what I mean? Like I get, I get the point, but I feel like it's too narrow. Yeah. But so when they first launched, there were nine victims that the RCMP was like, hey, look at these first. Alicia Germain, Roxanne Thiara, Ramona Wilson, which we said before, Ayla Sarik Auger, Tamara Chipman, Nicole Hoare, Lana Derrick, Delphine, Nicole, and Alberta Williams. And of those nine people, Nicole Hoare, H-O-A-R, is the only one that is was not indigenous. Whoa. And, you know, the thing, too, is that some of the stuff was saying that the death of Nicole Hoare was actually one of, she was one of the first victims on the Trail of Tears to get national media coverage, and she's white. And so it's just like... A fucking course. Mm-hmm. I will say, in 2007, EPANA changed the criterion about it having to be within a mile of Highway 16. They did include Highway 97 and Highway 5. Okay. So. Broaden their scope a little bit. One of, I think, the more famous cases that kept coming up whenever I was looking things up was Alberta Gail Williams. So, Alberta was an indigenous woman, and she was out with her sister, and I think they were at a bar. She was 24 at the time. This was in August of 1989. And they were at a bar hanging out with friends. And Alberta said she was going to go to this party with these other people. And basically, her sister turned her head for just a second. And when she turned it back, Alberta was gone. And it wasn't until a month later that her body had been found and she was strangled and sexually assaulted. Oh, my gosh. And her case is unsolved to this day. Fuck, no. There are a few serial killers that they have found that did murder some of these women. But I'm going to be honest. I don't want to talk about them because I don't. I don't. That's not to me. That's not the point of where I wanted this story to go. 
I will say Wikipedia had an amazing chart that I'm getting a lot of the information on the victims from. It had it broken down by age, name, whether they were still missing, whether it was homicide, like notes on their disappearance, the suspect or whoever was convicted of it. It's very extensive and it's amazing. So if y'all want to look at that, because I'm literally sitting here holding this chart and it is amazing. Okay. Delphine and Camila Nicole was 15 when she went missing. Um, and this was in June of 1990. She was last seen hitchhiking along Highway 16. She called her uncle at like 10 o'clock to tell him that he was she was on her way home. But here's the kicker. She went missing a year after her cousin Cecilia went missing. And she had another cousin, Roberta, who was murdered a few years after Delphine went missing. Wow. And so it just shows, I think, how fucking close to home this is for these. Yeah. You know, it's it's like everybody knows someone close to them, I feel like, in the area who is impacted by this fucking highway of tears. Yeah. So her case is still unsolved. They don't know, like, she's, she's still missing. Mm. I think with some of these missing cases, too, it was still very much like the old school mentality of, well, just give it a week. They'll be back. God, like that one case you did, it might have been in a milk carton minisode when it was like, he joined the circus. He could have joined the circus. Mm -hmm. There is one killer that I want to touch on because he's a little different than what you would think of when you think of a serial killer that's like hunting or disposing of bodies in the area. His name is Cody Lejbikoff, and he was in the area. And a police officer saw him leaving, like, kind of like a an area where he shouldn't have been. And he, he the police officer was just actually very astute and was like, something's not right about this. Pulled him over, and Cody had blood on him. And he's like, "What? Like, what's going on, you know? And Cody's like, oh, I was back there poaching. You know, like, confessed to a yeah. smaller crime, hiding the bigger one. You yeah. Know? And the guy's like, okay, but, like, radios for backup go check kind of thing and they actually found the body of lauren dawn leslie she had not been dead for very long and had just been dumped there wow and so the police are going through his car and they find some of her belongings in his car and that was her blood on him so he was actually convicted of first degree murder for the death of lauren dawn leslie Jill Stacy Stachinko, Cynthia Francis Moss, and Natasha Lynn Montgomery. Wow. He was only 20 years old when he was arrested. That's how young he, uh, he a 20-year-old serial killer. What the fuck? Have you, I mean, I can't think of any serial killer that young. Mm -mm. I mean, I'm sure there are, and I'm sure that everybody's yelling at their radio or phone being like, yes, remember, blah, blah, blah. But that one just stood out to me, just like, he's still a child, you know? Yeah. Not a child, but you know what I mean. Of all the victims that were killed along the Highway of Tears that we know of, the youngest was Monica Jack, and she was 12 years old. 12? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. And one article I saw said that the oldest was Maureen Mosey, and she was 33, but I, I, I feel like I saw somewhere else that there was a 35-year-old, so... Mm. But other than Cody Lejbikoff, there were two other serial killers that have been actually charged with some of these crimes. Brian Peter Arp and Edward Dennis Isaac. So those are kind of the three main 
killers that have been found. Yeah. So I guess the question is, like, where do we go from here? One of the biggest things is that the lack of public transportation. Mm. It took years of lobbying and protesting and all of that. But finally, the government provided public transportation to the area. But here's the thing. It's such a long route that the bus schedule is is very sparse. And so people are still hitchhiking. But one good thing that the bus did, though, is that it was actually because of how the finances were subsidized by the government and the local governments. It was actually a, a very inexpensive trip for the people who were for the passengers. And so that was to hopefully to get these people who are, again, living in rural areas, don't have as much money. That's just why they don't have a car and all these things. It's so that they can actually afford to use the bus. But they are working on getting more buses, better schedule. Like if you look up the Highway of Tears buses, it'll be like new route. You know, two new buses have been added. You know, they're, it, it's trying, I think, but it's still a long way from working. Yeah. The other thing is that there is a lot of conspiracy around the, well, not, con- well, maybe conspiracy is the right word, but scandal too around the Highway of Tears. And that people are saying that, you know, it's a cover up of these, the government knowing what's going on and doing nothing about it. And so they're like, it, that is systemic racism to hold back people who are indigenous. One of the things that came to light was that in 2015, this the Information and Privacy Commissioner of British Columbia published this like 65-page report talking about how emails and stuff about the Highway of Tears had been deleted. Yeah. What? Yes. It was it's a total like PG&E action from Aaron Brockovich like yes. you know how he he had the the paper that said basically we know the water's contaminated mm-hmm. don't tell anybody that's basically what's going on it's like yeah wow we know this is bad we know that all these indigenous women are going up but mm, sorry delete all the emails yeah let's censor the media exactly you know and again i really feel like it's like we started, we, because, you know, we're Canadian and all, but, like, we started towards working on some resolution, you know, by getting public transportation, EPANA being started, the name, like, it was so, like, yes, good funding, but it has slowly, every single year from budget cutbacks, just the number of investigators are dwindling. The The budget mm. every year is just getting lesser and lesser and lesser. And, like, gone from, in 2009, EPANA had a $5 million budget, and in 2000. 13 it was less than a million damn it went from 70 officers to 12 wow so again where do we go from here in 2006 there was this big like two-day symposium for everyone involved with the highway of tears it was victims families there were over 500 aboriginal leaders there and from this like symposium they created a report that Outline 33 different recommendations, such as, again, how to deter hitchhiking, preventing violence, increasing public transportation, you know, all of those things. So the communities are trying their best. It's not like they're like, hey, government, fix this, but they're not doing anything. They really are trying. When you look up the Highway of Tears, it was so sad looking at some of the images because 
other than like the actual map of the highway, the first five images is of this huge yellow billboard that's like caution girls don't hitchhike on the highway of tears and it says killer on the loose and it has pictures of some of the victims golly Mm -hmm. and so if you want more information about it to kind of read about everything www.highwayoftears.ca is a really good jumping off point of like how we can help and all of that so kind of a different story than what you know we i usually do but I felt like it needed to be done because one, like I said, the day that this comes out is Indigenous Peoples Day. And two, given that it was a big part of the Picton case that I I missed, you know, I felt like it was important to highlight the plight of people who are Indigenous and what they go through and the distrust in the government. And then it's like this constant battle because they're always being distrust with the government because of the the history that they have, which is why I wanted to go over those residential schools. And it's it's like this never ending battle of poor treatment. Yeah. It never fucking ends. No, it's insufferable. And, you know, people are dying. Yeah. This, this is a crime. Like they, they actually, the, um, when the government finally started providing like the financial restitution for the people, the victims and survivors of, of the residential schools, they called it like genocide. They were like, we fucked up, you know? Yeah. Um, oh my God. That's so true. But this is too. Yeah. Oh, for not, sure. Not as, a, as large of a scale, mm-hmm. but it is. Yeah. So I hope that that, you know, just gets you thinking about, you know, you, we feel like we've come so far and it's so easy to victim blame as I sit here in my house with my car that's in my garage and being like, don't hitchhike. You know what I mean? Right. But that's not the case. I mean, if it's yeah, literally you hitchhike so you can eat, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not their fault. Yeah. No, not at all. And so it just brings up so many social questions and things that you think about and the role of the government with like the transportation and, you know, yeah. just like, it just brings up so much and, you know, again, this is not meant to be a debate on racism or the role of the government and all of that. It's just meant to make you think. Yeah. To make you aware of what's going on. And that it really is everywhere. Yes. I will say that a lot of the stuff I found, too, was talking about how when Justin Trudeau took over in Canada, mm-hmm. because he's more liberal, you know, things kind of started shifting a little bit as far as the Highway of Tears and the acknowledgement and all of that. I don't know. I feel like when you do stories, you always talk about the victims being marginalized people, but it's Mm -hmm. in the past, you know, more in the past. And it's like, no, that still goes on. Mm -hmm. For sure. For people who have issues with substance abuse and are sex workers. Yes. And anything that's deemed high risk. Right. So even having multiple sex partners or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's just like, even if it's, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. anything that that some congressperson thinks is morally corrupt or yeah, as Inept. they yes, and makes you less than mm-hmm. as they do all of the shitty things in Congress. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like it's so easy to judge, but when they're literally doing the same thing. Yes, but they have money and power, so they get to they can use. A high dollar sex worker. Yeah. Well, and they could call up a doctor and get 
you know, medicine or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then, like, people who have to do other shit to, you know, it's the same thing. But it's, yeah, you got the high road and you get the easy route. But they, you know, again, they have to, I don't know. It's like the same thing, but you're you're on the express lane and they're having to stop in all the traffic and mm-hmm. all of that. And But you're still doing the same thing. Yeah, it's still the same thing. But yours is less risk because it's... Because you can call your doctor and uh-huh. get your whatever for your gonorrhea, whereas they have to go to the health clinic, you know? Mm-hmm. Which you want to shut down and all the... That, yes, you know? yeah. So, yeah. Again, this could be a slippery slope as far as politics, yeah. which we... I, I don't want us to get into. No. I don't want. Well, there's like, what's the answer? There, like, there is no there's answer. There's no answer. And again, I don't want like a slippery slope of like politics with this. I don't want anybody's feelings to get hurt, yeah. you know, as far as people's opinions and all that, because people's opinions are that. They're their opinions. And we're never going to change anybody's mind. So it's not, it's not worth the battle. Okay. When you said like people won't change or whatever. So on Facebook, you know. Mm-hmm. Seems legit. Mm-hmm. Um, but the guy who's over Signature Magazine, or, you know, the one where we won Best of the Pine Belt, mm-hmm. that award, y'all, y'all remember that? Okay. Mm-hmm. He had shared a post, and I think, like, when you said that, I was like, oh, my God, hold on. And it was with the Pine Belt News, because, you know, that's where we live. And he said, I hear people say all the time, opinions don't belong in newspapers. Editorials don't ever change anyone's mind. So why bother writing them? And it's this lady and she commented on like the Pine Belt News and said, Elijah Jones, this is who wrote the piece that she's talking about. Your column in today's Pine Belt News has completely changed my mind. I was one of those staunch supporters of our state flag. I never realized how it could invoke fear. Now I know. I compare it to the hurt I felt in Moreau, Louisiana, when an elderly black man stepped into the gutter so that I could have the sidewalk to myself. Oh, my God. I felt it then, as I do today after reading your column, that no person is better than me or anyone else. We are or should be equal. Thank you, my friend, for explaining for me. And what Elijah was talking about was in, I think, Leakesville, just that when he was younger, he remembered having to go through this, like a grocery store, but like a place, but they had to go through the back door because he is African-American and seeing the rebel flag, Mm -hmm. which we all know has been such a hot topic and whatever, but he is just talking about that when he sees that, he remembers having to go through the back and being less than, and Mm -hmm. like, that is just a reminder. And when he wrote it, it's a good article and we'll link to it. But I just, when you said opinions don't change or whatever, I like, when I read that, I was like fucking chills. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Because she's older and, Mm -hmm. you know, like, but it's like, Wow. What I do like is there wasn't any harshness. It wasn't like they were Mm -hmm. battling, you know, like where it's, I'm right, you're wrong. I mean, he was just sharing his experience Mm -hmm. and it resonated with her. Mm -hmm. The Highway of Tears, like, it's definitely not the same as the I-45 in Texas because it does have the important added component of people who are indigenous 
But I think it was almost like at first they were trying to say it was one killer doing all this. And it's not. It's it's a place where bad people know that there are potential victims who are vulnerable. Yes. And it's, it's a, a hunting ground. It is. It's a hunting ground. And it is it is becoming a dump site, as mm-hmm. terrible as that is. And that's, that's what I mean, much like the I-45 in Texas. Yeah. Is that it's the killing fields. And it's not one killer. It's not. People, word gets out. People know the places to go to find victims and where to dump bodies. And yeah. These killers are opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's reasonable to accept that a highway should be well lit and safe. Yes. That's a reasonable expectation. Regardless of where you feel or how involved or uninvolved you feel the government should be in the, your life. Mm-hmm. So today was a heavy episode. It really was. We learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Shit they didn't teach in history class. That's for fucking true. It really is. Because it, we get a watered-down version that they want us to know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like they feed us just enough for us to know and to feel, but not enough to want to make a change or yeah. to understand... The depth and the hurt and the all consequences. Of that. Yeah. So it's like, oh gosh. And then, okay, next chapter, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, okay, let's see what else. Yeah. Well, we always wrap up with what we learn. And we've talked about some heavy shit today. So I think what we've learned is just be kind. Yes. And rewind. No, sorry. <laughs> I had to say it. And you did. And it worked if Blockbuster was still around. <laughs> you know, and you had to rewind things. Right. DVDs came out, you know. Mm-hmm. So we're being kind. Mm-hmm. We're not judging people based on societal standards. Because you don't fucking know what people are going through until you've lived their life. Right. And had to make the hard decisions that they have to make on the daily. Right. Until you've lived with, like, the fear or the hurt or the trauma. And and that goes across the fucking board. Yeah. You never fully know somebody's story, so don't assume. You know what you get when you assume? An ass out of you and me. Mm-hmm. So I think on that note, we should remember. Creep it real. And, and don't, don't get, get scared. scared.